Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mom of the Hard Kid. Today, we're going to be doing the second part of PTSD. I did want to talk about the six years and younger, but we're also going to keep moving on and talk about the diagnostic features of PTSD and some of the other things that are in the DSM-5 to be able to talk about how it expresses in our life and how they explain it in the diagnostical, diagnostic and statistical manual for mental health disorders. So I went through this a long time ago and I have pink post-it notes in my book, but then I came through and I was doing the episode before and I was like, oh, that's right. There's this post-traumatic stress disorder for children six and younger. And I have post-it notes on that side. So I decide I'm going to do an entirely different episode for this PTSD in children under six, because that's what happened with us. I have a child, she's not even six at this moment, and she has a diagnosis of PTSD and she's had it for a while. So I was like, I will just refresh myself. I'll make an entirely new episode because the other one went kind of long. (laughs) There is almost no difference between underneath six and above six. And as I went through again, I was like, holy cow, there is one section that is different. And it's section C and I will read it in its entirety. But I was just really astonished that there wasn't a bigger difference. Because I have had other therapists, so she already had her PTSD diagnosis from her psychiatrist at this time. But we ended up, you know, switching our therapists and there was one therapist where I am explaining it and explaining it. And she's like, we don't give that diagnosis this young. And I just thought, kudos to you. Like, these are still her symptoms. I know you think that she's stupid. She's not stupid. Can we please just treat these things. Whatever helps for PTSD, just tell me and I will go buy the book and I will read it and we will go through that if that helps PTSD. And I do have a really good book that I like about PTSD, but um, it's very complex and know that there's a lot of different reasons you get PTSD. So there are a lot of different angles to come at PTSD. But also don't forget that I'm just a mom who was kind of failed by the mental health system. And so I've just been diving in on my own. So just a reminder. So we're going to talk about section C of PTSD in children six and younger, because the others are essentially the same. They have a few separate notes where um, in section B, where they're talking about how you know, the child doesn't need to appear scared when they're playing out in play therapy, you know, playing out what's happening. They don't need to be afraid of it, even if it is PTSD. I think that in a lot of the books I've read, this shows up in in sexual abuse, where sexual abuse can have happened, but the child doesn't know that it was terrifying. They just know that they were affected by it in a way, and now they have to deal with the effects of that. So, and that's just in some of the books that I've read. Um, But here in section C, I will read. So you have to have one or more of the following symptoms representing either persistent avoidance of stimuli associated with the traumatic events or negative alterations in cognitions and mood associated with traumatic events. They must be present 
beginning after the event and worsening after the event. So the first section that they have is persistent avoidance of stimuli, avoidance of or efforts to avoid places or physical reminders that arouse recollections of traumatic events. Number two, avoidance of or efforts to avoid people, conversations, or interpersonal situations that arouse recollection of traumatic events. Now you're saying, hey, this sounds pretty darn close to section C of the adults. And it is pretty darn close to section C of the adults. But in under six, and when I say adults, I mean over six, I'm sorry. But in under six, they also talk about negative alterations in cognition. So number three, substantially increased frequency of negative emotional states such as fear, guilt, sadness, shame, or confusion, which they kind of talk about in section D of the other one, but we'll continue. Um, Number four, markedly diminished interest or participation in significant activities, including constriction of play. Number five, socially withdrawn behavior. And number six, persistent reduction in expression of positive emotions. So this kind of fits into D, where (laughs) they've almost just like shuffled it around a little bit, because D has what E has in the other one. And it is so the D of the older than six has a list of things where it talks about negative alterations and cognitions of mood. And it has a list of seven things. But here it has a list of four things. It technically it's six, but they've separated into the avoidance of stimuli and the alterations in cognitions. So that's the difference. The difference is kind of how it shows up, because I think in this one point, they're trying to express that a child child under the age of six can't verbally say so. So this is what it's supposed to show up as maybe more of a nonverbal way where they can't say, oh, yes, of course, I have feelings of detachment and estrangement. You just have to observe their behaviors. And that is the difference. That is the only difference that happens between under the age of six and over the age of six in this diagnostic criteria, which is hilarious because in my critical snarky little mind, you get down to the section where it talks about dissociative symptoms and how it shows up and depersonalization. And it has (laughs) persistent or reoccurrent experiences of feeling detached from and as if one were outside, an outside observer of one's mental processes or body. And I think, how come, <laughs> how come you don't show what that looks like? Because I know what it looks like because my child did this. But to explain it in a way like this, where you're like, I know that you have to make it so that a child, you're viewing what's going on, but to separate it not at all and to not give any kind of observational description, I think is kind of funny. (laughs) The only section that they switched was that one where they try to explain what everything looks like. But that's going to be your biggest difference is when you have a really young child, you're, you're just going to have to notice their behaviors. And this is where I think the PTSD fits really well in with reactive attachment disorder is because I think that 
when you are observing your child and you're seeing the impacts that happen and you're seeing the adverse stimuli and they're trying to avoid a lot of other things, you're just the observer. You're observing their behavior. You have to keep watch of their behavior. And listen, mama or dad, I know you are watching this kid so close already. I know this kid is really hard. And one of the tricks that I used for myself is a notebook. I just wrote it down. I would write down how they behaved. I would write down things that they said. I would write those things down to help help it fit in my mind because as we read in the previous episode, PTSD can definitely affect the parents and it can affect your memory, <laughs> which is also something that is not included so much in the child section because they're kids and you don't really know what they knew in the first place. So the diagnostic features here are long and I am so glad that they are long. They talk about supporting associated features, supporting diagnoses. They talk about prevalence. They talk about development and course risk factors and pre-traumatic factors, which is kind of fascinating. So it talks about things that, you know, kind of put people more at risk. Talks about the environment and cultural related diagnostic issues. Talks about gender related diagnostic issues and how PTSD is more prevalent in female than males. Talks about suicide risk and functional consequences of PTSD stress disorder and differential diagnoses. Now, this is really fascinating because this is where you know, you talk and walk into the point where things overlap. Because when you have a child with reactive attachment disorder, there is so much overlap. And I attribute this to the fact that the child is incapable of expressing themselves or even understanding things. So you're left with this big glob of stuff and they don't really know how to categorize it. They don't really know how to compartmentalize it. They're just kind of like, there's a blah here because they're little. But when they get older, sometimes they don't grow out of this part. So I really wish that therapists were less concerned about compartmentalizing and more concerned about treating what's going on. So whether they have, and I call it alexithymia, but I might be pronouncing it wrong, where they can't understand what emotions they're having and they can't express it and they don't really get it. So they could be having aspects of this and they could be having aspects of that. And honestly, I really wish that the mental health professionals would take all of this information in and then cater a plan to your individual child. But right now, it seems like you go to a mental health professional and they're like, oh, uh, click, 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 click. Uh, let's do this pre-made plan. And oh, somebody came up with that pre-made plan. And oh, that didn't work for you. So let's pull out this pre-made plan. And what I wish they would do is they would say, okay, give me as much information as you possibly can. Let me study about this. Let me figure this out for this person. But because, you know, we live in a world where they are paid by the hour and they have to, you know, have life operate behind the scenes in many different ways and they need many different patients and there aren't enough 
uh, clinicians for the people that need them or whatever the problem is, there isn't enough time to do this. So as the parent, it is your best interest and your child's best interest that you learn as much as you can even if you don't learn everything. You're not going to get a doctorate degree in this, you're, but you're going to know what affects your child. And when you see how gigantic this DSM is and how you are at like, let's see here. Let me see what page this ends on. Like in page 816, there's 816 pages of this DSM-5 and they change it all the time because life is constantly changing. That's a lot to know. Plus, if you have to go down each section in the depth that your patient will require, you it's really hard to do that ahead of time. You need to be able to know that these mental health professionals can only due to brain capacity, not that they're stupid, but because you can't take all this in. I'm sure there's like 10 really clairvoyant people out there who can probably do it, but you're not going to find very many people. Most of your mental health practitioners are just going to be people. And I say this trying to give them a little bit of grace, but also I've definitely gotten incredibly mad about this situation. So Grab yourself your own DSM-5. Look up the, uh, oh, they just switched which category it was in. Look up the different categories. You know what? Just look in the glossary. Look for PTSD. But you can go kind of in the same one and find the anxiety section or the stress section or whatever it is that they made up and moved it to. I think it's an OCD maybe. I can't remember anymore. But And you can find out this information to yourself and you can go into your appointment and say, hey, this is where it shows up in our child's life. This is what it looks like. What can we do with this? And truly, I bet there's a lot of mental health professionals that won't care that you've done some research that will be appreciative that you're on the same page and even appreciative that they're not going to have to go home and read that extra book because they'll know that you're kind of on the same page. Unfortunately, just as in every profession, you're going to have those few people that think you're a moron, think that they know better. And the truth is, in a way, we are kind of morons. But in a way, they are also kind of morons. So it's a level playing field, more level than you think when you're able to give yourself information, especially fresh from the source. So when you go through this, and I encourage you to, and you don't have to buy the book, this stuff is available online. You can um, just Google DSM-5 PTSD and, and all this stuff can pop up. You don't have to buy the book in order to do that, which is good because if you get the newest version, you're paying over, over $100 for this book. And then they're going to come out with another version and you're going to have to pay it again. <laughs> which is fine. I actually want everybody to be as up and clear as possible on the differences and the changes. But they talk about the differential diagnoses. And we're going to talk about this. So they talk about adjustment disorders. And I'm kind of going to go into this so that you can understand what's out there, just to see, familiarize yourself, but also know that there's so much overlap that goes on in this type of situation. 
adjustment disorders where a stressor can be of any severity or type rather than what is required by a PTSD criterion A. So my child does not fit in PTSD criterion A. So when it doesn't, it can be called an adjustment disorder. Um, It's diagnosed when the symptom pattern of PTSD occurs in response to a stressor that does not meet PTSD criterion A. So they have an example of a spouse leaving or when you're fired where it's just like a difficult situation and you're having a hard time adjusting to it. And in a way, for sure, kids with reactive attachment disorder are having adjustment disorders for sure. But when it comes to treatment plans and successful treatment plans, I hope that I hope your mental health professional is open to this. So it talks about other post-traumatic stress disorders and conditions. Um, So it says not all psychopathology that occurs in individuals exposed to an extreme stressor should necessarily be attributed to PTSD. The diagnosis requires that trauma exposure precede the onset or exacerbation of pertinent symptoms. Moreover, if the symptoms response pattern to the extreme stressor meets criteria for other mental disorders, the diagnosis should be given instead of or in addition to PTSD. Other diagnoses and conditions are excluded if they are better explained by PTSD, so such as panic disorder or, or things like that. So this is where I lose a lot of mental health professionals. And I'm sure a lot of mental health professionals have this in their mind if they are the ones listening to this podcast. As they're saying to themselves, ah, if it's better explained, then it's this. And I'm saying... You just changed the DSM-5, the new one, the TR, to say that there's a spectrum out there for every freaking diagnosis. So when I come to you and I say this is a spectrum, and I don't mean it on a a 10 scale, I'm not saying that it's just one being light and 10 being really heavy. I'm saying that we have an entire sphere here not just a plane, actually, let's call it like a half of a sphere, where you have a flat part, and then you have like, let's make it a square. (laughs) I don't know how to make this shape in my brain. But it goes down and there is a depth. And the depth just ends all at the same time. But sometimes areas are lighter, and sometimes areas are deeper, and sometimes areas are closer into something they can grasp and sometimes they're farther away because that's life. It's kind of like a hazy fog. And, and the reason I can't think of a shape is because when I think of it, it's kind of like a splotch of paint that is dropped somewhere. And I always use gray for some reason when I think of it in my head, you've got this blop of paint and it's kind of wavy on the edges because there are pieces that they just just don't get at all. But then there are depths of color and some parts are deeper and darker and some parts are lighter and some parts are thinner and some and and I think that that is the human psyche. <laughs> but as I say it out loud, I sound like a crazy person. <laughs> so I think that it's fair to say, yeah, I I think a little bit of it is this. And I think a little bit of it is that. And I think the biggest thing that we should focus on is this problem. And I think that it's lovely to prioritize. 
And if your child has reactive attachment disorder, your first point is attachment. That's your first point because you're not going to heal any of the other points until your child reaches a point where they can trust you. And essentially attaching is trusting somebody. It's being able to reach out and say, I trust that this person is going to feed me. I trust that this person is going to keep me safe. And then you can bloom into other areas of better mental health and even happiness and even success in life. But I don't think that's going to happen unless you prioritize. But I also don't think it's going to happen if you shut out the different areas that are really occurring in your kids. And I know that this is a controversial thought in the mental health field. I don't know why it's a controversial thought. My guess is that it probably has to do with supply, like how much time the doctor has to offer, how much just any, like, I I think it has less to do with whether or not it's a good approach and whether or not it's a practical approach, which again is why I say, hey, parents, let's learn as much as we can to help our kids. So another differential diagnosis is acute stress disorder. So they say that it's different from PTSD because the symptom pattern in acute distress disorder is restricted to a duration of three days to one month. So This is when your kid is stressed and they just kind of explode for a couple of days. This is a very oversimplification. As you well know, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about supply is it's hard to reach everything. So then they talk about anxiety disorders and obsessive compulsive disorders. So in OCD, you have intrusive thoughts and you have definitions that meet the definition of obsession but they're not necessarily related to the traumatic event. So compulsions are usually present and other symptoms of PTSD or acute stress disorder are usually absent. Uh, They have major depressive disorder, personality disorders, uh, disassociative disorders, conversion disorders, psychotic disorders... (laughs) And they go through and they're like, hey, there's tons of other things that this could be, including they have here is to differentiate it between a traumatic brain injury, which of course makes sense. But it's also fair to say my child was absolutely ignored. She was left in her room. She was not paid attention to. She had this trauma happened to her where she was then removed from her parents and then she was passed around and then she would go for visits and her parents wouldn't show up you know just just things that were absolutely distressing to her and absolutely traumatic to her and I think it's a disservice not to include that even though it doesn't meet the exact criterion a of this disorder, but just like you can get PTSD and hypervigilance and super stress for a very long time parenting these kids, these kids can get it from being neglected where it's, it's smaller things over time. And I think it is a disservice to not include that. So that's my own two cents, (laughs) my own two mom cents. But I really encourage all of you to go out and read the diagnostic features, because I feel like it's really educational to be able to know whether or not your child is experiencing these things. So they talk about how 
you know, there's criterion A and the different things that can happen and criterion B and they go through and they talk mostly about, not mostly, but the part I'm going to focus on really quick before I end is the negative alterations in cognitions or mood associated with the event because I really think that this is a big deal where it talks even in here about how um, they t- how they have negative expectations regarding important aspects of life applied to oneself, such as, and it has in quotes, people in authority can't be trusted. So I think that's the exact... <laughs> That's practically the definition of reactive attachment disorder, except for it's people who are in authority as parents can't be trusted. And it, it, it goes on and talks about this. I really can't help myself. I think these are incredibly overlapping and again, a disservice if mental health professionals don't think so. So thanks for coming along on this dive into PTSD and the DSM-5. Again, I wish you all the best in the world. It is hard. It really is hard to raise a hard kid. I wish you the best and thanks for joining me.